The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Y'all survived prom. Those of you who had prom last night, we had prom night in our house. That means that we're very tired. I'm not. My wife's tired. She always is gracious enough to be the one to make sure everybody gets home safe and tells me to go to bed because she probably knows I'd fall asleep anyway. But uh, it's so good to see you. Uh, I have good news and I have bad news, Blake. You want the good news first or the bad news? Okay, the good news is we only have one chapter to go through today in Genesis. That's awesome. The bad news is I'm going to review all 49 chapters before I get to that one chapter. So we're actually going to cover 50 chapters today. And Jeff Howard just probably looked at his watch and said, where was lunch going to be? But now it's over. But uh, no, I hope, you'll, I hope you'll find that it's a great time. Uh, why do we do this? Because the whole book, uh, if we were to sit down and read the book, we would go through it a lot quicker. But when you only look at it once a week, from August till today, you can lose sight and you can lose the bigger picture. So we're going to review the whole book and we're going to end in chapter 50, which is where we were uh, before Resurrection Sunday last week. Wasn't last week an awesome Sunday? It was just a great day to worship the Lord. And so uh, my one main idea, the main point of Genesis is this. I pray that we will be strengthened and encouraged and inspired as we reminded that behind all the, the events of human history, behind all the events of human history, of every detail of every person's life, there is a God who is working for good. And that is a glorious truth to be celebrated every day. Lord, I pray that you will encourage our hearts this morning. I pray that as we just step back and kind of get a bigger picture, get a, a biblical worldview, get a, a, a more comprehensive view of life that, that we become smaller. And you and your plan of what you're doing is in the forefront and, and that we are made less of and you, we are making much of you this morning, that we will be caught up in, in who you are and what you are doing, that our lives would reflect your glory, and that you would, you would define us, that you'd be our identity, that you'd be the one that sets the purpose of our very existence, Lord. We want to make much of you this morning, and we know we'll be encouraged as we do that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, you can start with Genesis 1.1. Open your Bibles, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth, and that phrase is a phrase in Hebrew, heavens and the earth is a phrase of totality, and so, <clears throat> excuse me, one one is, is kind of mind-boggling, that before the beginning was started of creation, there was a God that already existed, and that right there, let's stop, and we could ponder that for the rest of the year and be like, I still don't get that. But it's good that we don't fully grasp this because that would mean that God's not that impressive. God is much bigger than we could ever imagine. So there is this God who eternally existed and is so powerful with just his mere breath. He spoke into existence all things. And then we got a little controversy in Norris Ferry many, many months ago as I went with Selhammer's interpretation 
of what, what was happening in verse 2 and following. And it was simply a focus on the land. And when you see Genesis and how the land is such a prominent part of Genesis, you can see that's a textual interpretation. If you don't agree with that, that is certainly okay. No major theology should change. And so what we saw was that verse 2 says, after God created everything, then he started preparing this specific piece of land, which we saw later he was going to promise to Abraham. Verse 2 and following, it says, the land or the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be. And this series of let there be statements proceeded from that point. Let there be this and it was good. Let there be that and it was good. And so God is creating and preparing his land for his crowning creation, which is humanity. And so in this, we see this all-powerful, this sovereign God who is so powerful with just his voice, just his word he spoke into existence. That same all-powerful, sovereign God of the universe is also good. That he's making everything good. And, and it, the mind-boggling truth is the ultimate good that he created was humanity. That he, this God who could have done anything, knit together in your mother's womb, he created you for your blessing and his glory. He created to bless you. And we see that in the earliest foundation of the book of, of the Bible. And that's what Genesis does. It lays forth these foundational doctrines, these foundational truths that, that absolutely are meant for us to build the Bible upon, but also to build your life upon, that we see who God is and what God is like. And we're going to see what man is like, humanity is like. And we're going to see how God responds to humanity in their sinfulness. And we see what God is doing. We see his plans and his purposes. And in our study of Genesis, this is the foundation of our life. We see the Bible is about God and our lives should be about God. The Bible doesn't say in the beginning man, and it's not a book about man, though man finds his and her identity and purpose in it, it's all about God, and so should our lives be. So in this, we see God is great and glorious and sovereign and powerful and mighty, and yet he's good, and he cares about humanity. In fact, he's creating a dwelling place for humanity. And so though we see God is not only sovereign and powerful, we see he is creating paradise and he's creating it all and he declares it good. He's the one, we see God is the one who sees what is good. God is the one providing what is good. Only God is doing that. There's no other battle. There's not a battle in the cosmos of who's going to be the great God. There is one God who is doing good. And so the natural response is to worship and he creates humanity and then he nestles them. That's a very unique word in Hebrew that it's just he nestles them, giving them safety and Sabbath rest. That's what God does for his people. He alone can provide safety and Sabbath rest as he's providing for their needs, as he's blessing them with good, as he's creating and blessing. So he creates them, he nestles them in the garden, he tells them to do what? Simply trust and obey. 
See, at the root of the Christian life is that very concept of living in a trusting, loving relationship with God. From that flows the fruit of obedience. But the Christian life is not all about starting place. It's not obedience and religious activity. The starting place is an intimate, trusting relationship with God through we will see Jesus Christ. And so God, this was God's gracious idea to give humanity. He created them in covenant relationship with himself so they could trust him. Why wouldn't they trust him? He's the one who's creating all things. He's the one who's blessing them with all things that are good. And he says, trust me. And as long as you trust me, I will be your life source. I will be your source of blessing." And so remember, there were two trees in the garden scene. There was the tree of wisdom, I like to call it, as Salehammer calls it, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So he says, if you trust me and not go seek out some other source of wisdom for your life, instead, if you trust me, you will continue to have access to life, the tree of life. But if you fail to trust me, you will cut yourself off. You'll be severed from access to the life tree and to the source of blessing. So what we see here is God is the source of all life and blessing. And to sin or to rebel against God, to stop trusting God and go outside of his will to seek some other way of obtaining blessings and life, all that results is being barred from life, i.e. death, and no more life eternal, and no more enjoyment of all the blessings of God. And so here we see the foundational truths of all of our life. In this, we find our purpose. When God nestled them in the garden, he said, here is your purpose, to image forth the glory of God. How is that done? In a loving, trusting, obedient relationship with God. And that's your very purpose. That's the water you swim in. That's the context of all of life. You exist for the glory of God. That's why God created you. That's why God gave you a job if you have a job. That's why God gives you education if you're at school. That's why God gives you a family. It's why God gives you children if he's blessed you with children. That's why you live in the neighborhood you live. That's why you come to this church. We exist to bring much glory to God. Now, how do we do that? It's all sorts of different ways we flesh it out, but the very overall way of describing it is you do all things in a dependence, a loving, trusting, dependent on the Lord. And that looks like living in obedience to him, submission to him, trusting that he is good, that he is out for your good. He's got a great plan and purpose for your life, which is all about his purposes. And you get caught up in that. And that's how you bring great glory to God. That's the reason you exist. That's the reason you will be a a teacher or a doctor or a pharmacist or, or an athlete. Whatever God calls you to do, you're to do it in such a way that it is a trusting, obedient relationship that brings glory to God. That people look at that and say, that is a good God that he serves or that she serves. So is your life shaped by his purpose. Is your life shaped by this overarching purpose that you exist to bring glory to God? Is your life about you or do you see your life is to be about God? 
Is your career all about you? Or is your career all about how does this bring glory to God? Is the way you spend your money all about God and his glory and how you spend it on yourself is in the context of I exist for the glory of God. Everything that you do is to be all about bringing God glory. That's the purpose of him creating you. So as long as we live in without sin in a trusting, obedient relationship, we are in con- connection with our life source of eternal life, our source of blessing. But tragically, chapter 3 happens, right? Chapter 3, humanity tragically turns away from God. And what, what do we see in that scene? The serpent slithers up and tempts, tempts them by questioning God's word. And that's where temptation comes. Anytime you find yourself being tempted, you can find at the root of sin is a doubt about God's word. Is God's word true? Is God really who he said he is? Will God really do what he said he will do? Is this really true? At the, at the root of the fruit of sin, at the root is a doubt, a, faith, a lack of faith in something about God or about what God has said. And so the snake slithered up and said, did God really say? And they doubted, they stopped trusting, they disobeyed, and they ate of the tree. They went outside of God's good provision. They said, I want to decide for myself what's good. I want to achieve for myself the blessings. And so they sinned, and what happened? They were in that land that later is to be promised, and as a result of sin, they are exiled from that land. And we see that pattern over and over. God's place of blessing, sin leads to exile from that. And so the future subsequent chapters, we see that sin is passed down generation after generation after generation after generation after generation until it arrived at my house and yours. That we are all born, just like Adam and Eve, born sinful the way they sinned. And so we see Adam and Eve's first son, their crowning creation. What was he? A murderer. And then we see as the stories of Genesis continue, the first civilization. How'd that go? Every thought of every Every thought of their mind all the time was only evil continually. So that didn't go so well. Then we see the first city that was built, the first great city. We think of New York City. Well, the first great city was Babylon. And the very name now brings to mind wicked, evil, sinful nations. Babylon was built not to make much of God's name, not to fulfill the purpose of bringing glory to God, but let's build a city that makes a name for ourselves. And so we see the sin of Adam and Eve is passed down generation and generation. And so all of humanity is exiled out of the good promised land, the land that is going to be promised. They're scattered across the face of the earth. And so God said from the very beginning, I want you to, I want to bless you and I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so instead of filling the earth with people who are bringing glory to God, living in a trusting and obedient, worshipful relationship, we have the earth filled with people who are living for themselves and bringing glory to their own name and are filled with pride and arrogance and hubris. And so at that point, we start to see what is, what is God going to do with these people? 
What kind of God, how does this God of the Bible respond to people when they sin and they rebel over and over and over? What kind of God is this? And he's a God of grace, God of extraordinary grace. The lessons we learn about sin is that we have the same sin problem. And so every day we wake up with this same temptation to doubt God's word, to doubt that God is sovereign, to doubt that God is good, to doubt that God knows what's best, to doubt that I can just trust him and obey him and he's working to get me in a place and a path of blessing and righteousness. We're constantly tempted to think that we have a better plan and a better way. That God keeps calling us back to him and to himself. So there's good news amidst all the the wickedness, the flood, the judgment, and the spread of sin. There's this good news. This All throughout Genesis, we've been tracing this little seed that is promised in the earliest as Genesis 3.15. Do you remember the judgment scene that Adam and Eve sinned and they're they're ashamed and their, their nakedness has been revealed, their guilt and shame. And so what did they do? They're leaving the garden. They're running away from God's presence and running away from God's place of blessing. And they're hiding as God calls to them and they're going away from him and God's pursuing them. And then you have this judgment scene where the judge sits and he asks questions, revealing their guilt to them, making them admit their guilt. Who told you that you were naked? Who told you this? Who did this? Why did you do this? And then God comes in judgment and he judges the serpent. He says, you will eat dust the rest of your life. You'll, you'll slither on your belly. And that's a Hebrew phrase of eating dust. It means total defeat. And then he says, how the serpent will be totally defeated. He says in Genesis three fifteen, he says, the seed of a woman, the child of a woman, a human seed will crush the head of the serpent, though his own heel will be bruised in the process. And like any work of literature, any beautiful work of literature, the answers aren't given at the front of the book. The questions are raised at the front of the book so that you will read and find the answers. Who in the world is this weird serpent thing? Who is this one who will crush the head of the serpent? What does all this mean? His heel will be bruised in the process. Who is this seed of Eve? And we start to read, and all throughout the narratives, these large national scenes of of sweeping scenes of nations, we see there's this seed. You'll read the narratives, and then you get to the, the genealogies. And what do you do when you get the genealogies? You go, boring, and you switch those. But what you're supposed to do is go, what is going on in the genealogy? The author is tracing carefully the seed from Eve down the line to Noah in chapter five. And then you get some narratives about these big scenes. And then you get chapter 10 and we see the seed is going to be traced through Shem, not the others, not Ham, but Shem in chapter 10. And then we get some big cosmic scenes and then we get down to a genealogy and we see in chapter 11 and 12, the seed is traced down to who? Who's the key one that receives the promise in Genesis. Genesis chapter 12. Abraham, thank you. If it got that wrong, we're turning the iPad off, we're going home, right? <laughs> Abraham. 
So big, huge, massive promise in Genesis 12 where God makes a promise to Abraham. Notice it's a one-sided promise. This is God saying, look, we've made it clear what humanity does. Now let me tell you what I'm going to promise you that I will do to redeem and restore my people and my planet. All of my people and all of my planet has been devastated by the effects of sin. And you just keep proving generation after generation, you are sinful and every thought is is wicked all the time. But I am gracious, God says, and let me tell you what I'm going to do. And he promises to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation of people. You're going to live in this land of promise you're going to, I promise you, you're going to have this land one day, your people, and from your family, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so as readers, we're going, okay, I want to see this happen. And so the promised seed goes, Abraham and Sarah have Isaac, and then Isaac has Jacob, and then Jacob's family, is, his, Jacob's name is, is Israel, and so he has 12 children, the 12 tribes of Israel, and which one did we learn not too long ago was the son of Israel that would be chosen? Which of the 12 was chosen to be the seed? Judah, that's right, the lion king of Judah. The seed that will redeem God's people from sin and restore God's planet from sin and to the paradise that he created. The seed that will bring about God's complete restoration at the day of the Lord. And see, that's the, that's the phrase that is used by the minor prophets. The day of the Lord is coming. The day that the Lord brings about his final redemption and restoration. And by the way, That's what we're looking at this summer. We're going to look at several minor prophets throughout the summer and see what they teach about the day of the Lord. This scary, fearfully, but wonderful day of the Lord where God calls us to judgment. And he finally, Christ returns and he restores and he redeems the Messiah being Christ. And so God is faithfully keeping his promises. And so we see the Old Testament closes with this portrait of the Redeemer. He's the son of Abraham. And later after Genesis, we see he'll be the son of David. King David came from the line of Judah. He's the Redeemer and the Restorer. And then Matthew 1.1 begins with an announcement. Jesus, he's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. He came from God. He's the divine son of God who came to redeem his people and to restore God's planet. So all throughout the narratives of Genesis, we've seen God working to keep his promises. We see he made a promise to Abraham and he's still working even now to keep that promise. So today, would you think it'd be weird if you were praying that someone would come to know Christ if you were praying that you could take the gospel to a friend or a neighbor, would you think it would be weird to say, oh God, you promised Abraham that you would redeem and restore your people and your planet. So God, please be gracious to this person. Please open their eyes. Lord, would you grant that this gospel goes forth with power? Would you open their eyes to, to see and open their ears to hear and open their heart to believe? Because that's still what God is doing. He still is keeping his promises to Abraham. 
all the way to the end of the Bible, all the way to the end of our lives, all the way until Christ returns. When Christ returns on the day of the Lord and finally wipes out his enemies and recreates the new heavens and the new earth and establishes people on the planet worshiping him, that is the final fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. So we should still be praying, God, keep your word, keep your promises that you made to Abraham. And so all throughout these narratives, we've been seeing God keeping his promises. We've seen it through the ups and the downs that he is this sovereign God who is working in the very details of the events that we face in our life. He has promised it and he is keeping it. He's doing it behind the scenes. In the narratives, we see it oftentimes in the background. The people themselves are often failing. Look at the heroes of our faith. We tend to think when we're not reading the Bible that they're heroes of the faith because they always got it right. But when we read the Bible, we realize they're getting it wrong more often than not. But God is so good and so gracious that he uses even sinners like us to accomplish his good plans. Adam and Eve sin, what does God do? He comes to them and he covers their shame. Then we see their children murdering each other, but God keeps blessing and making them fruitful. And then we see that God is about to send judgment. And if he does, if he wipes out everybody, the seed is over. What does he do? He spares Noah and tells them to build an ark. They leave the land after that to go make a name for self, make a big name for themselves. And God says, no, scatters them across the earth, confusing their languages. What does God do? God calls Abraham out of the nation's to his promised land. And what does he do when he calls Abraham out of the nations to himself? He says, now I'm going to save you. I'm going to bless you. Now I'm going to send you back out to the nations to take my glory to the nations. Abraham and Sarah, they scheme to have, they scheme with Hagar to have Ishmael, but God says, no, I'm still going to give you Isaac. Jacob schemes and manipulates, and through all those stories of manipulations, God says, but I chose him before he was even born. Judah and his brothers are evil, wicked, and they're persecuting their brother, which leads to them on on a journey of almost starving to death because of a famine, but God graciously uses even their own evil against Joseph to actually save them from a famine. So all throughout these stories, we should learn that in your life, filled with famine, filled with evil that you commit, filled with evil committed against you, all throughout the ups and downs of life, there is a good, all-powerful, sovereign God who is faithfully working his good and glorious plan in your life. Do you know God that way? When you're operating in life and bad things hit you, do you know God is still good. You know, the authorities in our life are meant to be God's gift to us, to show us how good God is. But tragically, because we're all sinful, some of us have a skewed view of God. We think he's mean and we think he's vengeful or we think he's hard or we think he's removed and doesn't care. But that's not true. The God of the Bible is showing you he loves you He's good, he's faithful, he's involved in every detail of your life, and he wants good for your life. So even when you experience trials, like Psalm 105 says that Joseph had his neck in iron and he was in chains, it says the word of God tested him, 
proving him, preparing him for that day that he would rule over all the land. That's what God's doing for you. He's preparing for you for that day when you and I as Christ followers will rule over all the earth. That's what this world is. That's what this life is. It is a testing and a training and a proving ground for the day that you and I reign with Jesus over a new heavens and a new earth. So when you say, I'm a Christian, I've asked Jesus to forgive me on my sins. Do you, do you realize the bigger picture? that God is doing. Do you realize that when you trust in the seed of Abraham, you are caught up in that whole plan? And that's the very definition of your life and your purpose. So this is not the end of the story. So we get to chapter 50, verse 14. In those first 14 chapters of Genesis, we see an incredibly uh, cool picture of the end how the, how the story ends. Uh, before we get to, to chapter, to verse 22, we see the verse, first 14 verses. Here's what's happened. Joseph, or excuse me, Jacob is dead. His name is Israel. Israel's dead, but he finally gets to the promised land because he says, before I die, he makes sure they say, you've got to take my bones to the promised land. And so in this last chapter of Genesis, we return back to the promised land. And so Israel, his bones are being carried by the, all the people of Israel into the promised land and who are at their flanks? All of Egypt, all the nations. And so we have in this funeral scene a picture of Israel with the nations in her flanks returning to the promised land. And this is a picture of the last days the scriptures pick up on these images. The prophets pick up on these images and speak about the day of the Lord, the final days when all of Israel will come to the promised land and at her wings will be all the nations or, or the nations will come streaming into the promised land. And so it's a picture of us. We are the nations. If you weren't born in the line of Abraham, in the line of Judah, which is where the Jew, the name Jew comes from, the line of Judah, if you aren't of Judah's family line, you are among the nations that will be streaming in with the Jews that God has called and restored to his final beautiful restoration of paradise. And so every bit of this is a picture of all God's plan and the book closes with one last scene that reinforces the main theme of the book. And we see this in chapter 50, verse 14. Look what it says in 50, verse 14. It says, after he had buried his father, so after Joseph had buried Jacob or Israel, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. And when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, we are in big trouble now. All right, so remember where we are. All the brothers of Joseph had done great evil to Joseph. They had sold him into slavery, beat him near to death. Joseph had gone through terrible trial after trial after trial, but God has used it all to put Joseph in a place of power. God used Joseph to save them from the famine 
Joseph's dad comes back up to Egypt to be with his family. Now Joseph's dad is dead and all the brothers are thinking, "Uh uh-oh, we're in trouble because dad's not here to protect us anymore from our brother. And so verse 16 says, so they sent a message to Joseph saying, dad said, you've got to forgive us. Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. So this is kind of a roundabout way of them confessing their sin and finally asking for forgiveness. Say to Joseph, please forgive your transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Now, what would you do? You finally have the chance to get revenge. They did you terribly wrong. Your whole life has been in this crazy place of false accusations, of chains, of iron clasp around your neck. Finally, you have been exalted to a place of power and they are at your feet begging you for forgiveness. So what does this story do at the end of Genesis? This personalizes all these massive themes to say that when you grasp these truths about God, when you grasp that God is sovereign, God is almighty, all-powerful, and yet when he had you at his feet where he could wipe you out, instead, he pursued to cover your shame He pursued you to restore you. He pursued you to redeem. He actually laid his own life down on the cross to take the punishment that you deserved. When you see that God has a plan to lift you up, to give you meaning and purpose, to bring him glory, and he's blessing you, he's actively blessing you, the one who sinned, crucified him on the cross. When you grasp those cosmic truths It should transform your relationships. These aren't just doctrines on a book. These are things that transform your heart. This is how you are transformed and made holy. That you can take a person who has committed a grievous sin against you. And you can say what Joseph says. And you can respond the way he did in the rest of verse 17. Joseph wept when he spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to him, listen to these powerful words, do not fear for am I in the place of God? After reading Genesis, what's the answer to that? Absolutely not. Who's in the place of God? And then he says, as for you, and now you see he gets it. He gets all that we just said we see in Genesis. He says, as for you, Yeah, you meant it for evil against me. Genesis 3. But God meant it for good. Because I know God, I know he's sovereign, and I know he's working all things for good. God meant it for good. God did all this to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. He sees God's greater plan working in all the suffering. And he points all the Egyptians, all the family of Israel and says that that many people should be kept alive as they all are today. So don't fear, 
I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your children, though you have been my enemy. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, he comforted them, what Christ does for us through the Holy Spirit. He comforted them, and he spoke kindly to them. You see, when you grasp the truths of Genesis, it transforms who you are and how you relate to others. When you see that Christ is the fulfillment of Abraham's promise that Christ is the one who took upon himself the sins that that you and I committed. He took the wrath of God that we deserved. He took it upon himself to, to forgive us and then to bless us and to give us a hope and a future. It transforms us and says, that's why you're here on this planet because you are just a part of this plan that God is doing. You're not the point of the story. God is. And when we get that, we get all the blessings as he gets all the glory. So the overarching point of Genesis is that we should trust that God is working all things for the good of those who are in Christ. Paul says that in Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things, God is working for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes, i.e. in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? I don't know what you're going through, but I know that if it's, if it's not bad right now, it's gonna happen. But the good news is, God is working all things for good. So how are we supposed to respond? I think the best way to respond is the way Psalm 105, the psalmist writes in 105, as David Granger read, a history of Genesis, of of much of all that we saw in Genesis from the perspective of giving God credit for all of it. This is what God has been doing all along. And here's how he says we should respond. He says, oh, give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord for everything. Every, this Man, we have had such gorgeous weather lately. I mean, I've just been sitting on the patio going, oh, this is so beautiful. Give thanks to the Lord, the creator who created the universe, who waters the grass, who sees to it that the birds are fed. Oh, give thanks to the Lord in all things. Give thanks. The psalmist says, Call upon his name. The one who has the power, who spoke into existence all of creation is at your disposal according to his will. He says, call upon the name of the Lord in your time of need. And then he says, make known his deeds among the peoples. Are you telling your friends about the deeds of Jesus Christ? Are you telling people how glorious God is, how wonderful he is to you? Make known the deeds among, uh, make known his deeds among the people. He says, sing to him, sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. He should give you the heart of joy. As you grasp these great truths, it fills your heart. It undergirds your life with a joy. A joy isn't just this fleeting happiness. A joy is a steadfast assurance in the sovereign goodness of God. He says, glory in his name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord be filled with joy and seek the Lord 
and his strength. Let him be your strength and seek his presence continually. I pray that we are a people who do what the psalmist calls us to do. Oh, Father, would you be gracious to us? Would you call us to yourself this morning? Would you fill our hearts with thanksgiving? Would you give us the grace to proclaim your great deeds among the nations? Would would we be so filled with glory and wonder at your goodness that we would proclaim it to our friends? Would we thank you for every good blessing that we experience, a beautiful day, food on the table, children who who do good things, Lord, every good thing, even in the difficulties, would we thank you always, believing that you are using everything for good the way we see in Joseph's life. And Lord, most importantly, we proclaim your glory. In this song, which calls the congregation to respond with the question, is he worthy? Together we sing and we respond, yes, he is. You are worthy, Lord. For you created all things good. You created us and you blessed us with all good things. You gave us life. You restore us and redeem us from our sin in Christ. You bless us instead of taking wrath out on us. And you bless us with a future and a hope. And we look forward to the day of the Lord when you will come again. And our training ground is over. Our our learning, our education, our equipping is over. And we will reign and rule with King Jesus on a new heavens and a new earth as we live in trusting obedience of you. And this earth is filled with your majesty and your glory. For God, we say you are worthy. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.